0: Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Vinswanger, the HB in HBTV. I'm joined today by Jean Maroney Zwanger, who is my wife and uh, is in the other room, but we're gonna play it like she's remote. We today are giving a presentation largely genes, based upon a number of questions that we got pertaining to psychology, which is her field. She has an M.A., an M.S., I guess, from Carnegie Mellon and an M.S. in electrical engineering from M.I.T. and a B.S. from M.I.T. And um, she has done a lot of work developing a theory of how to manage your mind, how to deal with emotions, how to be happy. She has many interesting and very different uh, approaches and and ideas in this field. So Gene, you wanna take it and give us an orientation?
1: Sure, thanks, Harry. I appreciate those uh, positive comments. So the topic, as we put it today, is emotions and clear thinking. And I submit that if you have a fuller understanding of emotions, you are much more able to think clearly under trying circumstances. And I think often people have a very limited view of emotions. They know various aspects about emotions and they focus on that aspect without really looking at the big picture. So for example, one of the most obvious facts about emotions is that they are a source of affect, A-F-F-E-C-T, which means that they are a source of pleasurable and painful feelings. And out of context, if someone looks at this, they say, well, gee, we want to have pleasure in our lives, Positive emotions that give us pleasure, these are good. And negative emotions, which uh, bring are painful, these are bad. And if you just focus on this aspect of emotions, you start being uh, like overly excited about positive emotions and afraid of negative emotions. And this is of course the error of emotionalism. It makes you very short range because the truth is that emotions are uh, alerts based on past data And they are only as good as your past data and they can be, it's not the case that a positive emotion is completely aligned with what's good for you. So if you just go after positive emotions, you can go after things that are very bad for you. And it's not true that uh, negative emotions are bad for you. In fact, they're actually essential. They provide you information. So you can't just look at them as a source of affect. They are a source of affect, but they're not just a source of affect. A little higher level of mistake is to look at them as a source of motivation. Now, of course, they are a source of motivation. If you have, if you have complete indifference towards something, it is impossible to take a step toward it. And in fact, if you, have, uh, if you think that it would be a great idea to get up at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning and go to the gym or 6 o'clock tomorrow morning and go to the gym, whatever it is, you think that intellectually, if you don't actually have a desire to get up or, at least, or maybe a fear of not getting up in the morning, you won't actually get up and go to the gym. So it is true that the emotions are a very important part of action because it is the emotions that are, they, am, part of an emotion is an action impulse that gets you, that makes it much easier to act. It's not that you have to have an action impulse to act, But if if you've ever tried to get up at six o'clock in the morning to go to the gym, you can do it with willpower and you can do it from time to time with willpower, but it's sure a lot easier if you actually have some motivation from an emotion to get you out. So again, this is true. Uh, It's true that they are a source of motivation, but again, people sometimes look at this sort of out of context and they say, oh, well, I just need to get my emotions in line with whatever it is I've concluded is the right thing I should do. So I need to manipulate my emotions. I need to trick myself into getting out of bed. And uh, so this leads to all kinds of crazy things. Like for example, using threats to get you out of bed. Like uh, uh, like if I don't get out of bed on time, I'm uh, gonna have to eat you know, something terrible for breakfast. I don't know, I'm just making something up uh, or whatever it is. Now, the other thing it does is it causes people to block out the emotions that don't seem to be in alignment with what they think is the right thing to do. And so you're feeling fear to say, uh, go speak in front of people. And you say, I need to just block that out. Or, um, you're feeling, uh, because you think you should talk or you're feeling a desire for something that you think is off off base like a cookie or something you're not supposed to eat you think oh i gotta just block that off well the effect of that is you wind up shutting down all of your emotions which means you shut down all of your motivation and you also make it harder to figure out why were you afraid of speaking or why were you desiring that cookie and particularly like with speaking, for example, a very good reason to be afraid of speaking is that you're not prepared enough. And it's actually important that one psychologist, uh, Neil Fiore calls it the work of worry. You actually need to go in there and look at the fears and say, oh yeah, I guess I'd better prepare. That's actually a very important part of what emotions do is they alert you to say, "Hmm, maybe there's something here you need to look at. So you can't just treat them as a source of motivation as something that you will manipulate and try to get in line with your conscious judgment. In fact, that what I would say is you can't actually have a fully rational judgment or rather in order to have a fully rational judgment, you need to have integrated all of the affective and cognitive information. That's how you know you've got it that you've fully integrated your judgment with all your values and all the facts. And that's what you actually want. So to get to this. Uh,
0: yeah. Yes. All right, so there's two things you've said so far. Uh, there's the error of thinking that emotions just are you want only the good ones. And because they're the thing you're after.
1: Yeah. You want no, to feel
0: good and block out the bad ones. Get Get away from them. And then there's the error from saying, no, uh, emotions are important for motivation. So I've got to trick myself into thinking that uh, I want to do this when I really don't.
1: Right, right. And I I neglected to say, and one of the other problems of that view is, if you can't seem to trick yourself into it, what do you do? You've got no way of getting yourself to do the thing that you actually think is in your rational self-interest. So these are both problematical the real fundamental and uh, the thing i learned from objectivism and harry Vinswanger, is that you need to look at emotions as the product of explicit or implicit value judgments in other words they are caused by and based on your existing values things that you have already acted to gain and or keep because you you know in some way things get organized in your data banks as things that you activate and keep them because somehow they are tied to other things which ultimately are tied to life they are for some reason you think this is connected to what is good for you in your life that may not be very clear it may be very implicit but that's what is actually causing the emotions so emotions are in fact You're a huge source of information about your values and your value hierarchy about how, what values you hold and how they are organized and access to this information is critical to clear thinking. You cannot think clearly without it. So I think that, uh, so let's talk a little bit more about what this means for thinking. So if you think of, emotions in this way, then they become really alerts to values at stake. And what I mean by that is some emotions. So for example, uh, desire and love and joy and even grief are pointing you toward a value, something that you care about. They actually direct your attention directly to a value. And the reason you're experiencing that emotion is because there's something, if, if you don't act, you're not gonna get that value or you need to act to get that value. Now, not all emotions point your attention to values per se. Some of them point your attention to threats. Fear is the most obvious one. Fear points you directly to a threat. But so does anger, right? Anger points you to a person who's doing something bad to you. Or uh, you know, guilt, you're the threat to yourself or frustration, there's something getting in the way, there's something to a threat to your easily being able to do this. Now, in the case, in these cases, in these emotions in particular, these threat-oriented emotions, it can be particularly confusing to uh, think about them. And one of the questions we're gonna be talking about is, isn't fear a special case? Well, it's all of these threat-oriented emotions are special in the sense that because they turn your attention to the threats, To get the value information you really need to figure out what is in your rational self-interest, you need to take a couple of more steps. You need to say, well, this is a threat, but a threat to what? The value that is being threatened may not yet be in awareness. And until it gets into awareness, you actually don't, you, you, you need to get it into awareness in order to have the full context to be able to make a decision about what's good for you. You know, if you think about the work of thinking, there are really three things. You need to activate the relevant information. You know, thinking is a purposeful process of taking things you already know and putting them together to figure out something new, a new conclusion or a new value judgment or solution to a problem. So part of thinking is actually activating. What do I know on this? Well, also, what do I value on this? Which is what you do by investigating emotions. Another big part of thinking is judging. Is that true? Is that, is that good? Is that right? And for these, you actually, the way that that works is when you ask yourself one of these yes or no questions, you, you say, you've come up with a tentative idea. Like, maybe I should uh, change the time of my exercise to the evening instead of the morning and you've thought about it you say is that a good idea and you get an answer you get a yes or a no or an i don't know and that answer depends on the information that you have successfully activated if you don't activate relevant information it will not get factored into that yes or no so you need to actually have this is part of your responsibility as a thinker is to make sure that you have activated the full context before you ask that question. And oh, then well, the-
0: can I interrupt gene, what, sure. what does that mean? How do you activate a context?
1: Huh. You, by asking questions of yourself about what you know to be is relevant and you ask, uh, like, for example, about what, like, for example, if you were going to talk about exercising in the evening, what else am I doing in the evening? Is there any downside or upside to exercising in the evening? Um, what scheduling complications would this be? What motivation would I have in the evening? These are the kinds of questions that you would ask yourself to, you know, uh, you know basically I'm, I'm presenting this in a common sense way. The more you know about a topic, the more specific and wonderful, you can ask very wonderful questions to activate the, que- the context. But in an everyday issue, it's you have common sense, You say, what do I know about this that's relevant? And you go and you look at the things you think are relevant. Which brings me to the third thing that is a big part of thinking, which is listening for little signals. Little signals about, you know, have I asked enough questions? Or, you know, if something's bothering you in the background, uh, Lee Pearson calls these inklings. They're like cognitive signals about whether this is all integrating or not. You know, is this fishy? or is this, yeah, 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 this is going well. And you need to have, you need to be able to hear those signals. So in order to think, in order to actually figure out what is in your rational self-interest, you need to be able to get at the real relevant information which includes the values which may not be in awareness, particularly if you're feeling threat-oriented emotions. You need to, Make a judgment, and you need to make a judgment with enough extra crow space that you can hear these little, pretty, whispery uh, little signals of how it's going. Does this seem to compute or not? So, you need to make sure that you are not overloaded in order to think. You can't literally, if you're overloaded, you can't do that.
0: Does everybody know what crow space is on the call?
1: Well, that's a good point. I, I'm trying to, I'm making a campaign for us to get a new word in the language, which is the crow and which is the place in your head that holds units. If you, if you're overloaded, if you have a to-do list, too many things to do and you feel like as soon as you start thinking about one that you lose track of another, there's something that has gotten filled up in your head and that's the crow. Now that started as slang in the objectivist movement. But it's a nice one-syllable word. I think it's a great word for naming what some people have, you know, your, your mental working yeah, space, people some people can,
0: call it. People can read about the, quote, crow epistemology in uh, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. It refers to a naturalist uh, discovery of how crows behave.
1: Yes, yes. So I think that's really the the deeper, wider understanding of emotions you need to be able to answer some of the interesting questions that we've gotten. You want me to take the first couple, Harry, and then hand it over to you? Sure. Yeah. So one of the questions was, what are some ideas for dissolving psychological blocks for clearer cognitive clarity? Well, what is the psychological block? It's really just a fear or an aversion. If you're feeling a block, it's like, don't go there. It's some, mm, that's an aversion, or maybe it, it could be a fear. That's really just an emotion. And what that means is you say, wow, hey, I'm really feeling a lot of aversion to this. I wonder what's causing that aversion. And if you turn your attention, introspect the aversion, what is the thing that would be so bad if I did this? This gets you to what the actual threat is. So I guess with a block, what's interesting is you don't wanna look at the threat. So you need to figure out, well, what's the threat? And then once you figure out what's the threat, you also need to figure out, well, what's the value being threatened? And a lot of times with these blocks, it's, oh, I won't be good enough. You know, various uh, statements of self-doubt, which are often totally irrelevant or sometimes a little bit relevant. And you need that clarity about, well, what is it that you're afraid of or resisting? And what is the real value? A part of you, when you're, uh, Harry actually just just fed me back this advice the other day. If you feel like you're in combat with your subconscious, your subconscious is yelling at you saying, don't do that, don't do that. You need to listen to it. It's, this is caused by your values. There's something about your values that's saying this action is gonna create problems for you you need to understand where is that coming from? And it's not that hard. If you give yourself permission to pause, not try to do the thing, but instead understand where this block comes from, you can untangle it and then see the issue and then reach uh, an intellectual conclusion about what is actually in your interest. And until you do that, you don't know what's in your interest.
0: And that uh, feeds into the question how do you validate introspection that we got that I wanted to take?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You don't have to validate introspection. Introspection is self-evident. Now, introspection is the word that's used for two things. And part of it's self-evident, part of it isn't. In the sense of knowing what's going on in your mind. I just thought a thought about introspection. <laughs> That's self-evident. You don't need to validate that. What would the validation consist of? You'd have to rely upon your knowledge of what's in your mind in order to construct a proof or validation of of introspection. So uh, the thing that is uh, good to know about is how do you validate higher level Analyses of introspection, like the reason I don't want to go to the family picnic is that subconsciously my Oedipal con- complex <laughs> is acting or what, it, you know, because I'm really afraid I'm, I'm going to lose time at work. How do you know that you got that right? And that's the same question as the equivalent about external reality. The way you find out is by performing little experiments. Well, suppose my mother weren't going to be there. It was going to be my brother, my sister, my father, my uncle, but not my mother. Would I want to go? Oh, yeah. So I guess it's about my mother. Well, what about my mother? And then you ask yourself another question. So. The the Mills methods approach is to vary one factor at a time and see what difference it makes to you in your emotional response. And that lends an objectivity to it. It's still, you know, not a 100% certain because you can make mistakes there. But basic introspection that you know that you're angry when you're angry or that you're thinking of Uh, philosophy, when you're thinking of philosophy and you're not thinking about peanuts, uh, that is self-evident.
1: Yeah. And can I just add two cents on here? Because I was thinking in answer to this question, the answer is how do you validate thinking? Introspection is a type of thinking. It's a type of gathering data from your subconscious data banks in order to figure out something new. In this case, trying to figure out what say, your top value is in this situation, It it is literally a type of thinking, it's some of the hardest thinking that people do, in, you know, in everyday life. Because, you know, if you don't have a particularly intellectually demanding career, thinking about your own values, and what is what matters to you is probably the most abstract, the most long range thinking that you do, which is why, can I give a quick plug for the uh, thinking lab? Yeah. So uh, my business is Thinking Directions and my main business is running a program called The Thinking Lab, where we do what is really state-of-the-art thinking, which means most of it involves really how to introspect your emotions and how to manage your motivation, because that is the kind of thinking that most people have uh, the most challenges with. And where, frankly, without Ayn Rand's uh, philosophy of objectivism, You don't have the principles to be able to see how to do that logically and clearly.
0: But uh, the self-observation part of introspection is not thinking. That's just like perception, internal perception.
1: Okay. Exactly. Right. Uh, So the next one I had on my list was... uh, how much is this method this a method for managing fear fear seems like a unique emotion and you can't necessarily think your way through it well so there's no emotion that you can think your way through if it is intense enough i think that very important to recognize the difference between the type of emotion and the intensity of the emotion if an emotion is very very intense what it does is it fills up your crow space like, grabs all of your attention to look at the threat if it's fear or the value. I mean, if you're in love and you know, infatuated, let's say, infatuated with someone, you're focused on how wonderful this is, it's hard. It, there's no mental space for anything else. So the point is not that it's it, it, the point is not that it's fear is difficult to think through. It's that a very intense emotion is actually setting up a mental state which is not conducive to thought. Now, there are situations where you can be completely in focus, experiencing an intense emotion, where you are convinced you do not need to act and you can just, in effect, contemplate and or pause. You know, you've actually decided you're gonna give yourself three minutes to just experience this emotion. So you can be completely in focus, experiencing an emotion, unable to, unable to think at that moment. Part of the thing that that does is it actually calms down the intensity of the emotion so that you have a little crow space left over to think. Emotions are designed, the way I think of emotions is that they are alerts. And when you respond to the alert and actually, yes, I am feeling such and such, they, they reduce in intensity. And that gives you a little brain space to then think about them. So once you have that brain space, then fear is exactly the same as any other emotion. Perhaps this question is coming up because sometimes one of the one emotion that's well or often described is what's called anxiety, which is a kind of free-floating fear. And the difficulty of anxiety is it's kind of difficult to tell what the threat is. Doesn't seem to have. It's not calling your attention to a definite threat feels like fear, but it doesn't call your attention to a definite threat. And it can ha- be helpful to know about specific emotions. Like in this particular case, anxiety is usually actually more an, an aspect of self-doubt. It's a little more palatable to be afraid than to be doubting yourself. And so then the question you would ask is, well, why would I be doubting myself in this situation? What, am I, what, what do I think I'm not going to be able to do? And that is what will then get you to what is the real issue? that is causing the emotion.
0: But also, if I can push your method. Sure. um, The best uh, self analysis there isn't to uncover some wrong premise or bad thing in you, but to figure out, like you say, well, I'm afraid I can't do this. So my values, I want to be really able to do this well. Yeah. What would be required for me to be able to really do this? Well, right. well, I need a lot more preparation practice. And so am I willing to do that? Yeah. If the answer comes back, no, then you've got something to think about. Like, well, then why am I afraid if I've just said eh, I don't <laughs> care that much. Right. And so uh, apparently you have an, another view that <laughs> you can not acquire the uh, skill or in a reasonable time, or you just don't learn well or something. And then again, the positive. So I want to be able to learn well. You know, they said about Schwarzenegger that he learned how to learn. He had three different careers in life, bodybuilder, movie star and politician. And he researched, actually another one, real estate. He researched each one and learned everything about it before he ventured into it that's very admirable.
1: It is very admirable. And let me just add in one other thing too, is that, that one of the things that's really a mistake about saying, oh, you know, that's my second-handed premise because, you know, in some situation you desire approval and you say, oh, that's wrong, whatever. One of the real problems with getting stuck in that is you don't actually look at, well, why did this emotion come up here? because there's always a concrete situation. You may actually be able to generalize some things and see that there are some patterns in your emotions. But if you're feeling an emotion right now, there is something concrete in the world that triggered that emotion and that matters to you in your life right now. And so it's not about, oh, I'm secondhand and I want approval. Whose approval do you want and why, and why would you want, well, how would that approval be good for you? then you can actually maybe get to their actual value. It may be that you really want someone's cooperation or that you really like this person, you'd like to be friends with them. Well, there, uh, getting really clear on what you're hoping for then opens up the possibility of taking constructive action to get what really matters to you. And that is, that's the value orientation, which I think we talked about in the previous time we talked.
0: That's an interesting thought that I just had now, Gene. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I was a... Uh, associate, and then a friend of Ayn Rand's, and uh, I was always afraid of her because I felt like I was hanging on her approval. And if she got angry with me, which she did once or twice, it would, you know, crash my world in. So I, you know, I fought it, but I, I suppressed it. And if I knew then what I know now, I would say, well, what do I want from her? I worry. It's not just, oh, you're right. You're a good boy. That isn't what I wanted It's you and I see the world in the same way. Right. You know, what what you the way that you responded to my writing shows that you uh really got it. And I could have communicated that to her directly. Yes. But it never occurred. I was just, oh, no, I can't be. I can't be desiring approval from the woman who taught me not to desire approval. <laughs> you know. So I needed your uh, your theories really really different if I had. Wow. I mean it was great anyway, but uh, I want to go through some of the quick bang 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 ones if you don't mind, sheen.
1: There there was one more that we were supposed to do today, okay? Okay. Which was uh, the trap. The one you wanted to do, yes. Yeah. Is there a trap in forming good habits that the habits narrow your thinking into automated habits?
0: Okay, is there a trap in forming good habits? There's no trap in anything good. (laughs) You know, you can't say, well, Francisco was a great guy, but he fell into the trap because he was a great guy of. That's not the nature of the world. The nature of the world is that reality is consistent, and you're either on its side or uh, against it, like James Taggart is. There are no traps. And uh, what you put your finger on there, I think, is the biological reason for free will. The reason why mind can't be determined. You cannot go by automatized programs and algorithms and expect to get to truth and survival. So you need the ability to question your automatized conclusions and to query for other automatized conclusions. So thinking uses the automatized, it's a good thing, but a a good thinking habits cannot be formed. There's no such thing as really in the end is good. Well, I have a habit of being rational. No, you ask yourself, okay, my automatic response is so-and-so, but is that really right? What, what are the other things I know that might bear against it? And, and where can I go with this? So it's precisely the problem that you're pointing to, which is not a problem, that is why you can't have a robot programmed to do what a human being does. You have to have the self-directed, context-setting, premise-challenging, in a self-generated look at reality that only a volitional consciousness can have.
1: Here, hear, hear, here. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I like to point out is that this is part of growth. Part of growth is recognizing that the habits that were in fact an automatized processes and all kinds of things that actually got you to a certain level of uh, effectiveness often need to be retrained to get to the next level. That is just a fact about psychology. And the truth is that you couldn't get to this level until you automatize that. But then, uh, I mean, so you can't view it as a trap. It's actually a means to getting to the next level. It's not, it's not an obstacle to it. It's the means to getting to the next level.
0: Very good. Ayn Rand pointed out that automatization is for the sake of conscious consideration it gives you crow spaces frees the mind yes. to work on a higher level because you can give the scut work to your automatized uh imagine for instance that every time you went to the grocery store and you wanted to add up the price of something you had to go from the beginning let's see it's six plus two one One, two, three, four, five, six, and one two more that's Came out to be seven. It should be eight. Oh, I did five plus two. I did five plus two. Okay. Uh, no, but you say six two, and wham, into your mind comes the automatized answer eight. So uh, it frees you to consider things you couldn't consider if you had to go through all the things that you should have automatized. Here, here. Well, we're we're at the end. Uh, we're. A little bit over time, uh, I wanted to um, do more, but we'll save it for next time. So this this was really a presentation sparked by Q&A. And I think next time I'll do <coughs> maybe with me, maybe without an actual Q&A. So that'll be next Monday. Ask Carrie anything. Thank you for coming. See you next Monday on HBTV.